Welcome to Seismic Shift, the podcast where we help leaders who want to be the very best versions of themselves. I'm Michelle Johnston, your host, and I'm excited that you are listening. Here is what we believe. Today's leaders need more than power and control to get the best from their teams. They need meaningful connection. Through interviews with some of today's top business leaders, we are going to explore how leaders' ability to connect with themselves, their teams, and their organizations defines their ultimate success or failure. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we have a phenomenal guest, the one and only Marshall Goldsmith, who just happens to be my official mentor. And I'm so grateful, and I want to share with the listeners, Marshall, how that even um, came to be. But first, welcome, and thank you for being on our show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. So Marshall Goldsmith is the number one executive coach in the world, number one global thought leader, New York Times bestselling author, and he is just about to publish his 48th book called The Earned Life. Marshall became my official mentor. Actually, it began in 2001 when I read an article in the New Yorker magazine that chronicled Marshall's work as an executive coach. And that was really before executive coaching was really a part of our vernacular. And I remember we had a subscription to the New Yorker and I remember reading this article and I had been working for a consulting firm and I was a relatively new tenure track professor in the business school at Loyola. And I read this article. It spoke to me. I made a copy and I put it in my filing cabinet thinking as soon as I get tenured, I'm going to lift my head up from the publisher parish and I'm going to be an executive coach and I'm going to follow in Marshall Goldsmith's footsteps. So fast forward, years went by and I, I pulled the article out and I became an executive coach following his stakeholder analysis, his methodology, the 360 feedback. I mean, exactly everything that was detailed in the New Yorker article, I did. And so I was probably, gosh, well into, I think I was coaching about 10 or 15 executives. And my biggest client was Auctioner Health. And they threw at the time, this was pre-pandemic, this huge leadership meeting. And Marshall was their keynote speaker. And he had just written triggers. So I'm in the audience. Marshall is up on stage and he had just turned 70 and announces to everybody if that he would like to pay it forward. And if anyone would like to be mentored by him, just send him an email. So to my listeners, I ran home that day, emailed Marshall and said, please, you're my role model. I've been following your work for years. I've been reading your books. Will you please be my mentor? Marshall, I didn't realize that I would be one of about 18,000 people asking you. (laughs) There were over 18,000. That's right. Isn't that something? So... I did not receive word back immediately, as you can imagine. I'm one of 18,000. But about six months later, Marshall was so kind, and he emailed me back and said, thank you so much, Michelle. Why don't you loop back with me? I'm a little overwhelmed. I was not expecting the response that I received. And he said, everyone from Broadway stars, 
former NFL stars, NBA stars, you know, the best CEOs of the World Bank and the list went on. He said, but circle back with me. So it took me two years to circle back with Marshall. I wanted to have my book written, my very first book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection. I wanted to have something that really differentiated me. So I sent Marshall another email. And let me just tell you, after I sent him that email, I was teaching a leadership class on Zoom. Believe it or not, I had just introduced to my leadership students Marshall's 360 methodology, stakeholder analysis. I finished the class on Zoom because we're in a pandemic. I shut my computer. I lift up my telephone and it's ringing from La Jolla, California. I pick it up and it's Marshall. And we had a delightful conversation. And when I tell you there are pivotal moments in your life, and this was one of those game changers, I knew that there was going to be a before and after moment that was defined by this telephone call. And and I was right. Marshall invited me to become a member of the 100 Coaches. And so since then, Marshall and I have worked together. I've been on weekly Monday calls with the very best executive coaches, consultants, chiefs, executives, former NFL stars from around the world, all trying to be um, to, to be the best coaches we can be to the top leaders in the world. So that's my story and how Marshall and I uh, had the chance to work together. So I'm talking today about connection, just the overview of what I have found in my research, that that old command and control style no longer is effective. It is all about connection with yourself, that foundational level so that you're comfortable in your own skin, you know your values, you know your North Star, you know your strengths and your blind spots. So then you can effectively connect with your team and that leads you to effectively connect with your organization. And what Marshall has found in his research with the earned life, which we're going to learn more about today, is all of this relates. And so Marshall, again, welcome. I'd love to hear what you have found in your research with your book. Well, in my new book, The Earned Life, I talk a lot about connection and I talk about the development of some of our processes. And one of them is our community. And part of connection is community. We often, we don't usually live where we were brought up anymore. Uh, Most of us don't have this sort of community from our past. And there's no saying it's lonely at the top, but used to be lonely at the top. Today is lonelier at the top with social media, And, you know, this getting rid of people so easily and people can be made fools of. It's very hard for people at the top to say anything comfortably. So to be in an environment where you can relax, you can be a human, talk to people, interact, is just incredibly valuable to people. So people, I think, love the community. And the reason is you get two things. One, you can be accountable. And two, you're not being judged. So you you do have a group of people who help you be accountable. On the other hand, they're not judging you. They're not putting you down. They're not your enemy. And they don't have an agenda. So our rules are you just give things to others, but there's no expectation you have to give something back. The idea is you just give something to someone else. So it's just based on this concept to pay it forward. And, you know, people help you, you help someone. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful idea. Fantastic. So one of the things that I have found in my research and in my book, The Seismic Shift, is that old model that I was referring to, that command and control, it was very transactional. 
very directive. And it was just focused on results, 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 achievement, achievement, achievement. Not really focused on getting to know your people on a personal level. Can you right. talk more about what you have found in the earned life? Well, a couple of dimensions. One is the old model is based on an assumption. The assumption is the leader knows more about what the subordinates are doing than they do. Now, if I know more about what you're doing than you do, then I could legitimately tell you what to do and how to do it. The reality is no one I work with today is in that mode. We all manage people that know more than we do. So for example, if you're a CEO and the marketing person, you know more about marketing than the marketing person, more about the finance than the finance person, more about HR than the HR person, you don't have a leadership problem. You have a selection problem. You have the wrong staff. You want them to know more than you. Well, when we manage knowledge workers, that old model that you're talking about doesn't work. How can I tell you what to do and how to do it when you already know more than me? Obviously, I can't tell you what to do. I have to ask, I have to listen and learn, and your connection becomes much, much more important. So that's one variable. The second variable you talked about is achievement. And that's really been a major theme in the book that's hit people. So in the book, I talk about aspiration, ambition, and action. Our aspiration is our higher purpose. Why am I here? Our aspiration doesn't have a finish line. It's more the higher purpose of why am I here? Why am I doing this? And it doesn't stop or have a goal. It just keeps going. Our ambition is related to achievement, the achievement of goals, which you talked about. And then finally, our action is our day-to-day -day activities. Most human beings throughout the history of the world have been focused on the action phase. They're just living from day to day. They go through life. They do what they're told. They play video game, whatever it is, there's living. Not bad, but that's just their reality. Some people are focused more on the... Uh, the whole idea of aspiration. Those would tend to be, you know, some maybe philosophy professors or people who are kind of lost in their head. They may not achieve much, but they live in their world of thoughts. Nothing wrong with that. That's just different. The people that I coach and many of the people you've been around are really focused on the achievement phase of life. They're hyper achievers. And when we get focused on achievement, we really, several dangers can occur. One is we can forget our aspiration. Why am I achieving in the first place? Now, why am I doing this? That's a classic case of politicians or business people. They start out with lofty aspirations. And then by the time they get elected a few times, it's all gone. And the other is we can lose the day-to-day -day joy of life. So one of the most important points in the book is the problems of being overly focused on achievement and especially having your identity tied to your achievement. And that's no good for two reasons. One is you don't control the outcomes. So a lot of life is not controlled by us. Our outcomes are influenced by many marketplace things that we may or may not control. But two, let's say you achieve the outcomes. How long does that make you happy anyway? A week, two weeks? It's very fleeting. And one of the guys in our group who you've met before, Safi Bacall, he's got an IQ of about a zillion, PhD from Stanford in physics. And he wrote the book Loon Shots. And he said his great learning from working with us is that he used to think happiness was a dependent variable on achievement. In other words, if I achieve, I will be happy. And he realized, no, happiness and achievement are independent variables. That some people may achieve a lot and be very happy. You may achieve a lot and be miserable. You may achieve nothing and be happy. You may achieve nothing and be miserable. He learned these are two independent variables. And really he quit, he dropped what I call the great Western disease. I will be happy when. You know, after I achieve this, I will be happy. Well, at a certain point with the people I coach, it's ridiculous. How much do you have to achieve? He's already worth tens of millions of dollars. He already has a PhD in physics from Stanford. He co consults with the president, has a New York Times bestseller. Exactly when do you declare victory here? 
at a certain point, it becomes almost ridiculous. Well, the challenge is really focusing on the balance of these three things, or I'd say a better word than balance is the alignment. So you have a higher aspiration, your ambitions, your achievements are connected to that aspiration, and you enjoy the process of life. You're engaged and enjoy the process of life. And assuming that you're healthy, you have good relationships with people you love, and you have middle-class income, that's about all there is. Yeah. So I, I, I think there is a real positive correlation between what you're talking about and what I have found with these leaders who had subscribed to that more authoritarian style, just do what I tell you and didn't really have a real connection with their team. Right. Is they just focused on achievement, achievement, achievement. It was almost like they were phoning it in. They were disconnected with themselves. They were just trying to get to the next, you know, promotion, and 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 they had this facade on, and they didn't really want to get to know their people. They just wanted to achieve, achieve, and they put all of this pressure on their people, and it ended up causing cultures of fear. And when you have a culture of fear, your employees, they don't want to speak up. They don't want to take risks. They're scared of asking stupid questions. So that doesn't drive results. And it certainly doesn't drive innovation. So what I'm advocating is we need leaders right now who are creating cultures of connection. And like you said, alignment's a key word. You really have to be connected and spend a lot of time on self-awareness, self-assessment, so that you're owning your story, so that you're connected with yourself and you know what your values are and why you're working, so that then you can successfully connect with the team. And Marsha, we've talked a lot on those Monday meetings about the great resignation, the great reevaluation, the reprioritization. And, and so we're hearing from people that it is so much more that they, they're figuring out, wait a second, I wasn't happy. I wasn't valued. The people that I was working with weren't happy. What can I do now to, to achieve this happiness? So tell the listeners if you have any advice. Well, I love what you just said. And I think what you're saying is so accurate. I'm just going to make one kind of a, a thought. The way you phrased it, it was like promotion. But it's not even just that. Some people fall in this trap in nonprofits and they love humanity. They just can't stand the human beings that are around them. And I find that a lot in nonprofits that people sincerely love humanity. They want to do what's good for the world. They just can't stand human beings. And, and exactly what you said happens, happens. The people become disaffected. Why am I working here? And they leave. So I think one of the things that Peter Drucker taught me that relates to what you said is the concept of the knowledge worker. You have to treat a knowledge worker as if they're a volunteer. And I ask people, how many of you manage people that can leave? How many of you have your better employees who can leave now and get a better job or at least get an equal job at higher pay? And they almost all say yes. Well, if I can leave and get a job at equal or better pay, I don't have to be there. I am in essence a volunteer. And if you treat me the way you describe, talk down to me, this and this, you know what happens? I think I don't have to be here. I'll just leave. Well, why should I have to stay? I don't have to stay. So some of the behavior you're talking about is based on old assumptions. The old assumption is you need me. Well, if you're managing knowledge workers, it's I need you. I need you. I mean, I'm here in Nashville. You can't hire anybody to do anything. And if you're rude to people here, goodbye. Why would they work with you? They'll just leave. I love what you said. You're right. It's it's a switch. Uh, one of the chapters that emerged from the data, which is why it became a chapter in my book, is act as a servant leader. 
Right. And, and it is that, whoa, 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 you know, I was at the top of the organizational chart as the CEO, but I'm now really at the bottom. I'm here to serve you, to help you. And something else that the research really uncovered during the pandemic, as we know, Marshall, is the employees, yes, some of them did leave for better paying jobs because they could work anywhere. They could now work for a company that paid more. However, what the research really showed us is that ultimately people wanted a positive environment right. where they were seen and heard and valued and appreciated. And that's a big shift, too, because a lot of those old leaders that had subscribed to that old leadership style, they, they were like, what? Work is work. I'm, I'm giving you paychecks. That should be your reward. What do you want? You know, there was a lot of pushback. Did you see that with the leaders you were working with? No. Because I, I wouldn't work with them. <laughs> I really don't work with a random sample of leaders. And if somebody had, had that attitude and didn't want to change, highly unlikely I would work with them in the first place. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't work with people like that. So it's, it's not really an issue for me. Everyone I work with wants to get better. They value people. They wouldn't do it. That's a good point. Some of the leaders I do work with have given me pushback and said, Michelle, I don't want to get personal with my people. Why are you making me ask a question at the beginning of each meeting on a scale of one to 10? How are they doing? And I said, okay, are most of your workers working from home? Yeah. Um, so how are, how are they collaborating? Well, I don't know. Well, how are you creating psychological safety? I don't know. I just need them to earn 30% more revenue next year. I say, okay, hold on. You're going to have to embed time for connection to get your teams and the people to move in the direction you want. As a matter of fact, one of, um, I was on a podcast recently, as I know you're on lots of podcasts and the interviewer said, okay, you talk about connection and this kind of shift to really caring about the whole person, but does that really drive financial performance? And Marshall, I was so fortunate to be able to say yes, because when I was in that publish and perish mode as a professor, I had this gut that if a leader created a positive team listening environment. So we called it the TLE, a team listening environment, a positive environment where their people felt seen, heard, valued, where they could speak up and they knew that their input would be listened to and occasionally actually be, you know, implemented. And so we wanted to see if we could correlate that with financial performance. And hallelujah, we did. We collected data at multiple manufacturing facilities across the United States. We asked all the, the people in these different plants. They actually turned car batteries. These, these It was KW Plastics. They took car batteries and turned them into plastic pourable paint cans. And so at all these different manufacturing facilities, we asked the employees, you know, do you feel like your leader creates a positive team and listen environment? And then we had the financial data. And thank goodness, of course, you and I get it. But it was really nice to see that there absolutely is a link to financial performance if you as a leader spend time creating this positive environment. Yeah, I agree. There's another way to look at it as well. Have the people I coach are billionaires. So financial performance to me is almost irrelevant. Like one guy I'm coaching, I said, I'm supposed to do raise you up from four billion to four point one billion. Pfft, you know, who cares? The the question I ask is, who do you want to be as a human being? Do you really want to be a human being that demeans people, talks down to people, acts this way, or not? And if you do, well, knock yourself out. I don't really want to work with you anyway. 
And I think a, kind of a deeper issue is not only is it going to increase productivity, is how you feel about yourself as a person. And oftentimes that's what the 360, the feedback really shows these leaders in writing how other people perceive them. And one of the best quotes that I've ever heard from you that I have in my book, and by the way, listeners, uh, Marshall wrote the introduction to my book, which was really great. And, And I quoted him, one of the best quotes is, when you are in a leadership position, you are held hostage by how other people perceive you. Key word, hostage, right? So when you conduct the 360s and you have all of this data from your stakeholders of how others perceived how you treat other humans, and it's your reputation, and you're looking at it, and pretty much, and that's what the New Yorker article found, and the title of the article was The Bad Boss, because they found that you worked with a bunch of jerk bosses, and you showed them the data and said, do you want to be this jerk? And they said, no. Good. It didn't change. And so could you share with the listeners um, the process that you recommend for change? Because there are a couple of key components to that 360 process, I think, that makes yours different than others. Well, as a coach, I am a facilitator who helps people learn from those around them more than I am an authority that teaches them everything. So what I do is everyone that I coach gets confidential feedback. My average client has 18 key stakeholders. There's nothing magic about 18, some more, some less. Average is about 18. They get feedback from their managers, their peers, their direct reports, oftentimes from family members. And they get this feedback. And then I write a report. They don't know who said what, but they find out, here's what you're seeing is doing well. Here's what you need to do better. Then I sit down with them and I say, well, all right, here's the feedback. Now, is this who you want to be? Yes or no? They say, well, I feel good about this. I want to get better at that. Now, if they're the CEO, I involve the board. If they're not the CEO, I involve the CEO. And then they sit down and they say, okay, there's a sign-off from upper management, either the board or I'm only coaching somebody who's going to be the CEO or is the CEO. So there's a sign-off from the CEO or the board. And then you say, okay, well, I say, my job is to help you get better at these things as judged by these people. That's my results based on long-term positive change over time. So then what I teach people is how to respond to feedback. So they ask for the feedback, then they listen to it. And I teach them to listen in a non-defensive way. And it's not that the people are right or wrong, as you mentioned, this is just their perception. That's what you're learning. And their perception is their reality. It's not your reality, but it's their reality. That is what it is. Ask, listen, and then think about that feedback, fight the urge to shoot the messenger, talk back, act inappropriately, thank people, and then follow up. And then when they follow up, we practice something called feed forward. They say, well, Michelle, thank you so much for this feedback. I don't know who said what. Many people took the time to help me. Thank you so much. Then they say, a lot of my feedback is positive. They talk about the positives, ethical, dedicated, hardworking, caring about the company, the customers, creative, gets results. Then you say, I hope these things would score high, and they did. I don't know who said what, but I want to thank everybody for the good things they said. Then you don't say but. You say, and here's what I want to do better. For example, I want to be a better listener. If I've not listened to you or the other people in the past, I'm sorry. Please accept my apologies. There's no excuse. Um, I can't change the past, so I'm not going to ask you for more feedback about the past. I'm going to ask you for ideas for the future. Give me ideas for the future to help me be a, a great listener. So whatever the person says, sit there, shut up, listen, take notes, say thank you, don't critique. Never promise to do everything. Leadership's not a popularity contest. I'd say, I'm not going to promise to do everything people say. I'm going to listen, think of the ideas, and do what I can. 
I can't change the past. I can change the future. And I can't get better at everything. I get better at one thing. And if you don't mind, I'm going to follow up with you and involve you and ask you to help me get better. So you involve that person and then you change. And I'd been in business 12 years before anybody asked me the great question, does anybody really change? And I said, well, I have a degree in math, but I have no research to prove it. Well, I've done 30 years worth of research. And the answer is, can people change? Definitely. Do people change? Maybe. Key to making change last is you have to follow up and stick with it. And that's pretty simple. You know, it's been two months. Based on the last two months, I said, I want to be a better listener. Give me ideas for the next two months. It's been four months, six months, eight months, 10 months. And our research on this is pretty hard to argue with thousands and thousands of people from around the world. If you follow this process, you are going to become a more effective leader, not as judged by yourself, as judged by all the people around you. That is exactly right. And and I really, it was hard in the beginning when I, before I knew you personally, but I was following your methodology and I would have my leaders ask the people, the stakeholders who I interviewed to come as a group in a team meeting for, for that leader to say, thank you so much for your feedback. Right. Here's what I heard and I need your help. And for some reason, a lot of my leaders really struggled with that. They do. Well, we've been brought up to prove how smart we are, not to be honest. And, you know, I mean, you've taken in your life test after test after test, thousands of tests, right? Well, you've been trying to prove how smart you are for decades. It's very hard to stop. But I think asking, yes, and I think asking for help is really a key differentiator of just involving those people in the process. Here's what I've heard. Thank you so much. Could you help me? I'm focusing on this one behavior, listening. Give me some advice forward. And that is the feed forward process that Marshall has advocated and continues to advocate. So you'd mentioned listening and you posted recently that listening and humility were two key characteristics of what you've learned about the earned life. Can you talk more about that? Well, number one, humility is a key to the success of everything I do. Everyone that I coach has to stand up publicly and say, my name is, I want to get better at. And if in they don't- In front of his stakeholders? In front of stakeholders, peers, bosses, everybody, family. And if they don't want to do it, I don't care, don't, but I just won't work with you. So, you know, that's it. I mean, look at Hubert Jolie, who you met, just an amazing man, totally turned around Best Buy, stands up in front of everybody, says, my name is Hubert Jolie, I have a coach, I've got feedback, I'm trying to get better, please help me. What's the message though to everyone else? I want you to do the same thing. So I wrote a great article and it's called, to help others develop, start with yourself. As a leader, you want them to get better? Don't preach at them. Let them watch you try to get better. Yeah, you go first. Frances Hesselbein, amazing woman, she goes first. Alan Mulally, who you met, you know, he goes first. You know, let, let the leader go first. You want them to improve? Let them watch you try to improve. Don't preach at them. Yeah, you be the role model. That's incredible. Do you go back? I've never asked you this, Marshall. Do you go back after a year and do another 360 to show how the needle has moved? How do you oh, yeah. close and move on? Yeah, we typically do a mini survey. And the mini survey is very simple. Just here's the behavior, better, worse, how much, comments. Yeah. And then you move on. What is your um, average time that you spend working with these, the best of the best? Well, it's an interesting question. Formally, I'd say it's a year to a year and a half, but informally, it's decades sometimes. Yeah. Alan Mulally. You've met many of these people, and, you know, I haven't been their official coach for years, but, you know, there's still, I still deal with them all the time. 
And so we've talked about happiness and the equation of happiness, right? And do you find that when these leaders, some of them come to you, they, they've kind of had to rethink some of the decisions that they've made or maybe the values and they were out of alignment? You know, again, alignment is a key word. Is that where, if because you're dealing with the, the top of the top of the top. And so at that point, and it is kind of lonely, are they, are they, moving in a different direction? How are you helping them at that level? Well, again, everyone is different. On the other hand, the concepts you're talking about, what I teach people is be happy to be happy. Now, in my book, Triggers, you mentioned, I, I talk about three medical doctors I interviewed. Uh, John Noseworthy, head of the Mayo Clinic, Raj Shah, who was uh, head of the USAID, now head of the Rockefeller Foundation. I just talked to him today. And Jim Kim, who was president of World Bank and has a simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard in anthropology in five years. So all three brilliant people. So I ask them all a question. And obviously I can use their names. It's in the book. On average today, how would you score? What ranking would you give yourself on this question? One to 10 scale, did I do my best to be happy today? And all three had the same answer. Never dawned on me to try to be happy. Now they're all medical doctors. I said, well, did it dawn on you you're going to die? Did they cover that in medical school, that death thing? Did they, did they bring that topic up? I said, yeah, they, they cover that in medical school. I said, well, you think this is a silly question. Is it? It's an important question I was forgot to ask. I was too busy achieving things. Too busy achieving things to remember to be happy. Well, you know, at a certain level in life, you need to look back and say, I'm going to enjoy this process. And the enjoyment of the process is an independent variable from the achievement of the results. Do you find that some of these leaders were not connected with themselves? Depends. Uh, again, most people I work with are very good people. They're connected with themselves. We all get lost. I mean, look at our society. There's Our culture is totally reinforcing the opposite of what I teach in many ways. Uh, what is a great Western art form? I would predict you've seen this literally hundreds of thousands of times. It sounds like this, there is a person. Oh, person is sad. Oh, they spend money. Oh, they buy a product. Whoa, and they become happy. This is called a commercial. Have you ever seen one of those before? How many thousands of those have you seen? That same message over and over and over and over. Happiness is out there. That will make you happy. You spend the money, you have less money in a product. You may or may not be happier. All you have is a little less money in a product. That message, though, happiness is out there. You will be happy when has been reinforced in our minds literally millions of times. You will be happy when you get the achievement, when you uh, buy the product, when you make the money. You will be happy when. And if you look at some of the people in our group, um, some great athletes, look at the National Football League. Curtis Martin is a wonderful person. He's in our group and he tries to help athletes disasters. National Football League, what did 70% bankrupt in five years, uh, depressed, all kinds of problems. Why? Divorced? Why? Their value in life was the crowd, the cheering, the adulation. That stuff's gone. That's gone. Once it's gone, what did Michael Phelps think about doing? He won 25 gold medals after he won the last medal? Kill himself. Why? There's nothing left. Well, part of the book has a good line. What do you do after the victory lap? Yeah, what do you do after the victory lap? Well, there needs to be something there after the victory lap. Because if there isn't, you know what the finish line is? A finish line. 
And you know what you get? Finished. Wow. Hubert Jolie is, a, I think, a really good example because he, when he was turning around Best Buy is when he really had the eureka and he ended up writing a book, The Heart of Business, that it was about the people and bringing out their passion. And he really changed that model. So many people told him, well, Best Buy is going to go bankrupt. And thankfully, he proved them wrong. When did you get, because you were coaching Uber, and there was a real shift in how he led. And were you a part of that change? Well, I was his coach before he went to Best Buy. I was his coach at the Carlson Company. Now, Uber will tell you this, and he talks about it in the book. This is not a secret. So if you look at the people I would consider to be my all-star Hall of Fame coaching people, he would be one of them. But he would tell you, a few of the others were there to start with. Before I met them, they were off the charts good. He would say he wasn't. (laughs) My book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, he went through the 20 negative habits. He said he had 13 of the 20. (laughs) He always had to be right. He wasn't right. Ex McKenzie analytical, good human being, high integrity all the time, wanted to do what was right, but cold, right, very indifferent, make my numbers, that kind of guy. And he just realized, I don't want to be that person. He wasn't happy. Well, he just realized he didn't want to be that person, you know, and he wanted to be somebody that was more connected to people. So with his goal of, I want to be more connected with the people, then he gets this opportunity to turn around Best Buy, and then he gets to try out this new model, and which it works. Was, and it worked brilliantly. And he tells in the book that that it, when he, he first took the job, he just put a badge on and went to one of the stores and just started talking to the employees and the customers and talk about listening. That's one of the chapters in my book. You, if you're a new leader, right. don't make any changes until you go on a listening tour and just listen and understand the concerns and what's working, what's not working. I, I just uh, started a, a new coaching assignment who's done an incredible job uh, financially. And when I was conducting the interviews, I found that he really didn't, except for his, his executive team, he didn't know his people. And so rather than getting to know, if he didn't know somebody's name, and this is not a huge company, he would just not go through that door to have to see that person for a year. Right. And there wasn't any process for him to even get to know the new people. And so as you can imagine, that's going to be one of my first recommendations. You have to get to know your people. So when we close this out, and so much of this is about connection and just making sure that you're connected with yourself so that like the example we just talked about with Uber, so that you first ask ask the question, am I showing up as the human I want to be? Am I the human I want to be? And then a lot, you begin with that 360 and you look at the data and if there's, if it's out of alignment, then you have that desire to change and then you can connect with your team. But you're right. There has to be the desire. I want to get to know my team. I want to be a better human. I want to be a better leader. And then ultimately that alignment is that connection with the organization. And can you articulate that vision and, and motivate everybody and get them excited about achieving but in a way, like you said, so you and that they're you're treating them like volunteers and you understand they can go anywhere, that it's on you to get them excited about where they're going in that direction. So are there any other closing thoughts that you want to uh, share with our listeners? 
Yeah, final thoughts is the best coaching advice for everyone is take a deep breath and imagine you're 95 years old and you're just getting ready to die. And right before you take the last breath, you're given a wonderful gift, a beautiful gift, the ability to go back in time and talk to the person who's listening to me right now. The ability to help that person be a better leader, even more important, to have a better life. What advice would the wise 95-year-old you who knows what really mattered in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't have for the you that's listening to me right now. Now, whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of a performance appraisal, that's the only one that matters. If that old person says you did the right thing, you did the right thing. If that old person says you made a mistake, you made a mistake. You don't have to impress anyone else. Some friends of mine interviewed old folks who were dying, got this question. What advice would you have? On a personal side, three themes. Theme number one, three words. Be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. The great Western disease, I'll be happy when I get the money, status, achievement, BMW, blah, blah, blah. No, you won't. Be happy now. Number two, friends and family. Back to connection. Don't get so busy climbing the corporate ladder you forget the people you love. And then number three, if you have a dream, go for it. Because if you don't go for it when you're 45, you may not when you're 95. And a business advice is much different. Number one, life is short. Have fun. Enjoy the journey. Number two, back to your point of connection, do whatever you can do to help people. Now, the main reason to do the things you talk about in your book to me is nothing to do with money or status or getting ahead. The main reason to do it is much deeper. The 95-year-old you will be very proud of you because you did and very disappointed if you do not. And if you don't believe this is true, interview any CEO who has retired. I've interviewed many and ask him a question. Please tell me, what are you proud of? None ever told me how big their office was. They didn't talk about how much money they made. All they talked about is the people they helped. And the final advice is also the same. Go for it. World's changing. Your industry's changing. Do what you think is right. May not win. At least you tried. Old people, uh, we don't regret the risk we take and fail. We always regret the risk we fail to take. And finally, as I've grown older, my level of aspiration in life has actually gone down and down and down. My level of impact has gone up and up and up. Why? Quit worrying about what I'm not going to change. So what's my goal in this little interaction with you? And so much thank you for inviting me. My goal is pretty simple. Help someone who's listening have a little better life. If one person listening to this has a little better life, I'm declaring victory here. Gosh, you have certainly changed my life, Marshall, as my official mentor in such a positive way. I was definitely one of those on that achievement path, you know, achieve, 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 achieve. And and now you've introduced me to tr my tribe of, of people and we're all trying to be the best versions of ourselves and all trying to help other leaders just be great humans. And I'm happier as a result. So I just can't thank you enough, Marshall, for being on the show, The Seismic Shift, and for being our mentor. And I guarantee you, you have impacted many more than just one person listening. Thank you for joining us on Seismic Shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in you using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life.